Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. This week's episode, wow, is one of my favorites. I learned so much, so, 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 so much. Um, Laurie Bachman is the guest. She is a business transition sherpa. Laurie is also a podcast host. She has a phenomenal podcast called Succession Stories, which I'd encourage you to check out. But her line of work is really on how she advises owners on building more valuable and more sellable businesses. So helping them with mergers and acquisitions and guiding them through the complex process of letting go. And we had a really fascinating conversation. I think just given the disruptive landscape we find ourselves, we spoke a lot about how do we navigate that as business owners. Um, Growing organically can be difficult. What are the other options available to family business owners? And how can we innovate in light of this choppy landscape we find ourselves in? So I'd encourage you to listen in, enjoy, and you may want to take some notes. <laughs> if you're driving, I know that's you can't do that, obviously. However, um, this is one I've listened to a couple of times and just keep finding more and more in there. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Hi, Laurie. Welcome to The Connected Generation. I'm excited to have you today. Thanks, Nikkei. It's so great to be here. It's great to return the favor. <laughs> I loved our conversation. I really did. I really did. It was a really fun conversation. It seems like a long time ago, but really hasn't been. But a lot has changed since then. Oh, Um, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Moved across a different continent. But um, enough about me. This is about you. I'm super excited. So you are a business transition Sherpa, which we're going to go into in a bit. But before we do that, can you tell us more about yourself and your life journey to how you yeah, got to here? Uh, of course. Thanks so much for, for having me on the show. My life journey in a, a few short sentences. Um, I think I'd summarize by saying I know I'm, I've always been a builder and a connector. And, mm. and, and I've had this entrepreneurial spirit inside of me, but it's manifested its way out in the career choices I've made by joining startups and very entrepreneurial organizations, even large companies that have what we call intrapreneurial or corporate entrepreneurship processes, like for a large global retailer here in in the, where I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, American Eagle Outfitters is headquarters here. And I joined them very early on in the e-commerce division. And that was definitely a startup. So I mentioned that in the sense that I think we're going to talk about entrepreneurship in large enterprises. And I think from my career standpoint, one of the important things is I've always taken aspects of one type of organization to the next and then back again. Mm. And, And a key point in my career, most of my career has been on the growth side, the marketing and business development. And then Uh, A few years ago, I would say, what was it, 2013, I became CEO. Uh, I was an outside hire for a third generation privately held company, family led company here in Pittsburgh area. And I was hired to run one of the divisions. And I know we'll talk more about that, but I'm just going to pause there because I think that's a big turning point in my career and ultimately what led me to what I'm doing today. Mm. So before I keep going on and on, I just want, I want to pause with that. 
No, that's awesome. I wanted wanted us to drill a bit deeper on the distinction between entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship. Yeah. Entrepreneurship typically, and there's a great article by Steve Blank. If you Google it, you'll see he titled it Four Types of Entrepreneurship. And I do a presentation for students at Carnegie Mellon University. I'm an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at the university. And one of the presentations that I do for students is called Eight Types of Entrepreneurship. I originally called it four and said, well, you get a bonus because there are so many different flavors of it, Nikkei. And Mm -hmm. I think that there are distinctions of entrepreneurship, but you'll find it within big companies. So one distinction is entrepreneurship. Typically, we think about it as you're starting something from scratch. Mm -hmm. You are maybe in a hustle business, right? Where a lot of people are, they have these retail bots online and they'll, and whenever there's a new sneaker drop, they'll go get those sneakers and then they'll resell. That's example Mm -hmm. of a, of a hustle, you know, type of environment. Then you have the imitator type of entrepreneur that sees something out there. They didn't invent it, right? Like real estate. We didn't write in a real estate business, but if we create a brokerage and we run our business in a better way or a restaurant chain, that's unique. That's called an imitator type of entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. This intrapreneur is is someone who sees the opportunity within a larger company, well-established, mature business, and says, you know what? We can do something. We can do something interesting for the market, for our customers, for products and services. What can we do to help differentiate our business and also enable it to grow? One of the things about large, well-established companies, it's organic growth is difficult to come by. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times companies are going to do all they can with organic growth, but they might start to plateau and they look to either, you know, look to other strategies like buying other businesses, you know, doing mm-hmm. call tuck-ins or acquisitions, you know, and tucking them in to their, to their portfolio. And then they also might say, you know what, we want to, we want to do R and D or we want to innovate. We're going to create an incubator we're going to start a new business within our company. And and again, from my experience at American Eagle, uh, we had a couple of great examples of that. And that's, I think, the biggest distinction from an intrapreneurial standpoint is you're typically operating within an existing well-established structure Mm -hmm. versus an entrepreneur is typically looking out in the world, seeing something that needs to be created and saying, huh, I have a better way to do that. And I'm going to go figure that out. Fantastic. And why I love this conversation on entrepreneurship is that it provides more options for the next generation to get involved in the family enterprise. Um, because quite typically, it's, people look at it as a very binary thing, like, should I work in the manufacturing plant that granddad built or not? Um, but I think there's more options than that. I think and um, what you're saying is is really highlighting that as this group for the next generation to get involved with the entrepreneurship. How can we optimize the, the business as is through acquisitions, through research and development, through incubating new um, product lines and ideas and things? Have you seen much of that? I have. And as I mentioned, Carnegie Mellon, the, the Center for Entrepreneurship, the Schwartz Center, runs an annual conference. And at this year's conference, which is happening uh, in mid-November, so at the time of this recording, anyone interested may be able to find some of the videos online. Uh, It's free to to attend. And I am running a panel about this topic. It's about reigniting your entrepreneurial spirit in multi-generational businesses. And I have three people 
amazing CEOs that have been on my show, which is called Succession Stories. And so I had gotten to know them and asked them to participate on this panel. We're going to talk about it. We have a second generation, fourth generation, and sixth generation leader. Mm. And this idea, this notion that when you're the new leader, you don't want to rock the boat. You're getting the baton. You're getting the keys, right? And they're, you're, you're most likely being told by either your uh, family or the managers that are running the company, uh, don't screw it up. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, but don't screw it up. So there's a saying, uh, the spouting whale gets harpooned, right? Mm. And so it's a very, it can be a very te- uh, tenuous situation where you want to come in, you want to make changes, you want to protect the legacy, you want to respect it. But at the same time, you know that you've got to innovate or die, right? We We are all whether you're in a family-led company or not, if we don't continue to innovate, if we don't continue to understand the market dynamics and react to it in a proactive way, what does that mean for our company's legacy in the long run? So there can be a cultural challenge. There can be a cultural challenge with that. Uh, there's a, there are examples of publicly traded companies that have created innovation groups. They are investing in what we call this corporate startup idea, and they have a process and they hire people, really smart people, and they create teams. In in family-led companies, you might see less resources sort of organized in that fashion, but from my experience with with these family businesses, and even the one that I worked in, um, we did have an R&D group. Um, Some folks call it, uh, you know, an innovation initiative. And they'll hire, depending on the business, of course, if it's more technical folks, like we had, we were, we were in the transportation and logistics space mm-hmm. and we were working with robots. We were cool. working with uh, robots in warehouses and then kind of like the big robot that you might imagine with arms mm-hmm. that would uh, move as things would come along a conveyor, it might move things onto the conveyor. And so we were experimenting with those types of things, but there's a woman that's come on my show Karen Norheim, she runs a, uh, she runs American crane and American crane makes giant cranes for, you know, that are installed on the ceilings of of big manufacturing facilities. And she's created an innovation group to understand some of the market needs, some of the customer needs, and she has staffed R and D engineers and come up with new processes and new, you know, aspects to their products as a result. So that's just one example. Um, this other gentleman who was on my show also, Chris Yanikos, he's second generation, and for him it was about the data. And he convinced his father, who was so staunchly opposed. I mean, the story is just so interesting to listen to. They were on a business trip. It was like a two day trip, and it was this you know, marathon conversation that Chris was really trying to convince his father why the data in their business was so important, not just the service they provided. Mm. And, and finally the father said, you know what, I, I I think you have a really good point and you should go ahead and and build this. And, you know, and you encounter that it's not an easy yes. And so it does come down to culture. It comes down to strategy. It comes down to letting go. Oh, and by the way, that conversation that I had with Chris Yanikos on my, in the interview was also with his father. I it was at the wow, same time. Really? And it was cool. so interesting to get both perspectives yeah. at that time, you know, what, how each of them saw it, how each of them remembered it. It was really, really interesting to hear that. That's super cool. I'll, I'll be listening out for that. You said um, what influences, you know, is culture, 
strategy and letting go. Can you just expand shit, elaborate on that? Yeah, Chris's father, William, made that point. That mm-hmm. William was the founder, so he's generation one. And he's still active with the business, but certainly less so. Chris has you know, moved into a larger role. And for William, he really reflected that that really was what it was about for him mm. was letting go. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think that also means it, it can be a little bit, sometimes in family-led companies, it can be a little bit of not invented here syndrome. So a lot of times, and it happens in large companies too, where if it's not your idea, it's not a good idea. And that can, and that can be dangerous because especially now when it, where you have so many things happening with technology shifts and customer preferences changing, you know, generally speaking, there are many, many things to learn by benchmarking and looking outside of your four walls. And I think this ties in with strategy and culture, because if you don't have the mindset for that that it's okay to look outside and look what others are doing and apply it. Uh, that can be a little bit of a trap. You get stuck in your own head. You get stuck in the, in the way you do things. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about coming back to your entrepreneurial roots. Can you um, share more on your experience with that and family led businesses? Yeah. So f- coming back to your entrepreneurial roots means we recognize the value of what it's taken to build the business today. And mm-hmm. in America, we talk about this saying, I don't know if you've heard this, Nikkei, but I think we talked about it on my show, shirt that sleeves uh, shirt, shirt, sleeves. shirt sleeves in three <laughs> generations. And so typically, you know, the stereotype is that the, the entrepreneur, the one who launched the business was the one who took the risks. Mm-hmm. The second generation continues to run the ship the way it's been run because they don't want to mess anything up and they've been told, don't mess it up. And then the third generation comes around and something goes wrong, you know, or they just decide it's not going to continue forward. And, and so this return to the entrepreneurial spirit is sort of evoking that idea mm-hmm. that the founder was the one taking the risk. So it's about risk-taking and I'm a big fan of modulating risk-taking. I'm not an all-in kind of gal, right? I mentioned that in my, in my opener, it's taken me a long time in my career to be in my own as a business advisor and mergers and acquisitions advisor that I now officially consider myself an entrepreneur. So I completely respect in organizations, you can't just make willy nilly investment decisions about time, about money, about people, you have to dedicate it. So Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example from, uh, so from my perspective, when I was CEO running a division, it was about a hundred million dollar division. And I saw some signals in the market that we needed to implement more technologies to better serve our customer base, move inventory and, uh, you know, higher inventory turns and generate better operational profit. Mm -hmm. However, when we took a look at the corporate life cycle, and if you take a step back, right, and just say, okay, there's a corporate life cycle here. And I, and I could talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but as we tie it to this, this story, of where we were in our cycle, I think we were more definitely more mature. Mm-hmm. And we had exhibited signs that we were very comfortable in the status quo. And so there was a book, there was a speaker who I've actually gotten to know the author. Uh, his name is Luke Williams. And he's a professor at NYU. And he and coincidentally moved to Pittsburgh. So I've gotten to know him. Mm-hmm. And he was an outside speaker at this company. Um, 
small company called FedEx. And uh, <laughs> so FedEx, I should mention as part of the story, Nikkei, FedEx bought the company that I worked for hmm. in 2015. So my uh-huh. journey as a CEO was on the side of, hey, I'm joining this, I'm joining this company for the long term. We are going to be innovating and investing and in, in, in sustainable in, in a sustainable way, right? We're, we have this long-term vision. And uh, we had to change course. But before that, uh, I'll share with you this piece that um, this book, Disrupt, is the book. And it it really inspired me because I knew that I needed the creative uh, minds, analytical minds of some people on my team. And I stood up what we call a skunk works, which is a kind of a software term, but it basically means, Hey, you have your day job and outside of your day job, I'm going to give you this additional assignment. This is a really cool assignment for you. I'm asking a lot of you, but you're going to gain a lot from it. You're going to learn a lot. And the people we chose, we were very thoughtful about it. They knew that it was in addition to their, to their daily job. And their assignment was to come up with three innovation ideas for the business. Mm -hmm. And it was again, cross-functional. It was, you know, uh, we looked for diversity in different ways and different experiences, skill sets. And that's, and so the book talks about that in terms of this process, how can you literally create a, an innovation team? If you don't have one, if you don't have a process, how do you introduce that into your business? So that's what I, tried to do. Right. And I think in some ways it was successful in some ways it was not. Some of the reasons had to do with timing. As I mentioned, we were getting acquired. And, and so that, that layered in a whole lot of different aspects um, for others that have not yet come up with a way to really think about innovation. Sometimes they'll work through third parties mm-hmm. and they'll hire a consultant to come in or they'll hire a firm. There are firms out there. I don't, I don't have any particular dimension, but there are firms out there that will do market assessment studies. They'll get to know your customer base. Um, uh, There's one manufacturing company that I've been talking to in Michigan, and the owner is the son. Uh, There was a transition. The father died and is out of the business. And so now the son's fully in charge and nothing was innovated in that business for years and years, but it was healthy and profitable and all that stuff. Well, I should say healthy-ish because I think underlying culture issues and problems in the management level, nonetheless, um, they haven't innovated anything. Well, I was talking with him as, you know, a potential client and, uh, and we were talking about the value drivers in a business mm-hmm. and what makes a business more valuable or more interesting to a potential acquirer. There's eight core drivers of value. One of which is recurring revenue. So one of the things that a company can do is innovate around a business model. It doesn't just have to be around the product or service. The product or service itself. Correct. So I think in the way, if in the spirit of innovation, if you think about what differentiates your company, what truly differentiates your business, it could be a number of things. It could be how you do business. It's more automated. It's more cost-effective. It's more scalable. It could be the business model. You know, it could be how you're differentiated against whoever you define as your peer group. In let's say if it's a competitive set in your industry or, or, you know, whoever you want to benchmark yourself against. And so those are some examples I'll share with you. Mm. Fantastic. And so you today, you advise business owners on 
you know, mergers and acquisitions, that correct? I do. Yeah. yeah, And and getting ready. Mm -hmm. And getting ready. And you've had experience, like you said, as you were a former CEO of a company that was then acquired. So can you speak to how you help folks and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So as a business advisor, exit value planner, I'm talking with CEOs, founders, uh, family-led companies that are thinking about transition. Mm-hmm. Transition in a broad sense. It could be this business transition, meaning, hey, maybe we'll sell or maybe we'll transition to internal management through a mechanism we call uh, an ESOP. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe we will look at a management buyout or maybe we, you know, and the list goes on. Maybe the owner wants to stay involved and they just want to take some, we, you know, we say we take t- some chips off the table. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking to sell part of the company, not all of the company. And I have some clients right now, both are software uh, and they're looking at, one is looking at maybe sell, you know, selling the whole business. The other one is selling part of it. I have a client that's looking to retire and it's a kind of a main, what we call more of a main street. It's a pool maintenance and repair servicing and it's a retirement. So in, it doesn't matter what their individual scenario is. What, what does matter is their goals. And so that's where we start is what is the, what are the owner's objectives? And we have to define those so that we can, we can really uh, put together a plan. The more time a business owner has to make a plan, the better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, I'm ready to sell now. And then you bring it to market. For me, it starts with an evaluation of the business on these value drivers and what might pose more risks. Mm-hmm. what might create more value in the market. And, and then we do a valuation to understand how, how much is it worth? So that's typically the first question, or one of the first questions you know, for business owners is what are their goals and what do they think their business is worth today? Uh, they don't usually know the, the actual answer, of course, because it's a hard answer uh, mm-hmm. to find, but they might have a friend or they might've heard something and they think their business should be worth the same, but it's just like in, in a, in buying a house, if your house is the same as your neighbor, but you've improved the basement and the garage and you've put in a hot tub is your house going to sell for more or less than your neighbor. Your of course, it's going to be in the eye of the buyer, but mm-hmm. it should sell for more. You've made more investment in it and it's got more reasons. So for a business, it's all about transferability. So there's three core aspects of when I work with a client on this business transition side, which is personal readiness, financial readiness, and business readiness. Most of our time will be spent on business readiness, but the Mm. personal side's really important too, because we acknowledge that we're all people and we're human. And if your name is on the door, there's even more um, reason to, to care about these, these core goals and objectives because the way mm-hmm. you see things is going to differ and how your, what your options are, what your motivations are and who you might want to sell to or transition to will, will change. And so what I have with clients is a giant matrix essentially of who different buyers might be what their motivations might be and trying to match it up with what's the seller motivation and what are we trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. You mentioned transferability is key. Can you explain what you meant by that? Transferability is, can your business survive without you? What will happen Uh if you are not there for 90 days or longer? Will the business decline? 
Will it stay the same? Will eventually, you know, stagnate and then it'll eventually decline? What will happen? Well, what we sometimes see is that the owner is the rainmaker. They are the person who drives the sales and they are the one that people come to to solve problems and, and they, they're the chief go-to person. Well, what happens with that person when they're, they're no longer there? What, how transferable is that business? What if mm. they are the only ones that know how to do this very specific service? Mm. Well, if they retire, how transferable is that business? So there's some statistics out there that uh, of the companies on the market that are looking to sell that are in this lower, low market, I call it under 5 million in revenue, um, a, a very large percent of them will not actually transfer. Mm. And, and, and for a lot of reasons, but, the, but typically uh, the risk associated with the business, the lack of transferability is typically one of the main reasons. Mm. Interesting. Um, and then I wanted to touch a little bit on for folks that are contemplating selling or in the selling process, what are the, you mentioned um, the value drivers of a business. How, what, what drives that value in terms of the market value for the sale of a business and how, what steps can they take? Obviously, if you're, you've listed your, your company to be sold today, then there's very little you can do. However, if you've got, you know, um, runway for five to 10 years, what can you be doing now to increase the value of your business? There are a lot of things they can do. <laughs> so a great place to start where I start with clients is an assessment. I mm. use a tool called the Value Builder System. It's a very easy to take survey, but the product that comes out of it, the deliverable is really a valuable deliverable. And what I do with that, with what we do with it is we take a look at their scores on a zero to 100 point scale in total, and also across eight different drivers. And that's a great starting point because it not only shows us, are they in the red, are they in the yellow, are they in the green, but it also gives us a comparison to a normative group in their peers that's associated with the industry that they're in. They, it's called a, in the United States, it's called the NICS code, the NAICS code. And so we, we compare that and we look at that holistically. We say, okay, which are the ones that are lowest overall and which are the ones that are low and they're also lower than your peers. And that gives us a, a starting point. It'll also give us an estimate of value of where their business is today based on a, what we call a multiple of EBIT, EBITDA, EBITDA um, mm-hmm. which is a profitability measure. And the other thing that I want to recognize not only with clients, but just for the purposes of the show too, in education is that it isn't what we think, right? It's what the potential buyer thinks. And so a key part of my process then in engaging with clients is I will go do a market study. And let's say this company is a HVAC company. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they're, they're in an in a industry niche. Well, there might be potential buyers. It, we call either strategic buyers uh, or financial buyers. Financial buyers include private equity groups, as an example. And I can make some inquiries in an anonymous way, right? I don't have to reveal who the client is, but it's a great way for us to understand what that market will bear in this market in this market study. And then we mm-hmm. take those two things and we go, oh wow, here's where we think we are today. And here, we, here we're going to understand which of those eight drivers are actually most important 
mm-hmm. to a potential buyer and we back into it. And I think it's a really smart way. And if you have more time, as you pointed out, let's say even two to five years, not even necessarily five to 10, but the more, the better. And we will work and adjust. There's another gentleman who was on my show, David Weibel. He, he did this. Uh, he, he was in a business that was not recurring revenue. It was kind of project-based. And over the period of 10 years, it was like, uh, you know, not every day. It was kind of like in total, maybe about five years. And, you know, he would have these conversations with people that were potential acquirers of his business. Not only to build relationships, they might've been in his you know, supply chain. I don't literally know who they were, but from those conversations, he was able to discern that his business needed a recurring revenue model to really make it more attractive. And mm-hmm. that's what he did. And he pivoted the business and it worked and they ended up selling. So I use this as an example, because we say, look, we got to understand where you are today. We need to understand where you might be. And then let's look backwards and say, all right, if we were able to sell for, you know, for this type of multiple Here's what we're going to need to do. And here's what we're going to need to go work on. And it's a, it's a really powerful way to look at it. I think. Awesome. I guess my last question is how, how has COVID impacted on the M&A market? just generally. It's generally not. It's a oh, okay. hot, it's a, I was just, I was I'm getting, I know I'm getting my, uh, my mergers and acquisitions advisory uh, certification. And I've been going through a lot of classes lately and seeing a lot of data and a lot of charts and over overarchingly the data is showing the market is hot as ever for deals the activity has not slowed the primary reason for that is there's a lot of what we call dry powder in the private Uh equity space they are looking to invest but it's all about quality it's still about a quality deal there are certain industries like healthcare like industrial tech and like fintech that are very, very hot. Um, but that's not to say if you're not one of those companies, you can't still have a great exit. Um, we, we say it's frothy. It's a frothy market. Uh, there's money to be spent. But of course, that money is all chasing the best deals. Mm-hmm. So is it a buyer's market, seller's market? Or does it really depend on your industry? I, I guess it's... Um, it's probably a seller's market to some extent. There are a lot of buyers out there who are very interested. To to me, as a mergers and acquisitions advisor, I, it's all about fit. You know, it's it, it's about the numbers, yes, of course. But yeah. there are stories. I do, yeah, do hear stories about the seller deciding to sell to to uh, it wasn't the highest buy, better, but there was a better fit. And so it goes back to what I was saying earlier about really understanding what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish, asking the right questions, having great representation uh, from a collaborative group, including not only somebody like myself, but your, your M&A lawyer, your accounting and tax attorney, or excuse me, tax advisor that has mergers and acquisitions experience, uh, you know, surrounding yourself with great people. What I, what I always say is, look, entrepreneurs don't build their companies on their own. So why should they exit? and transition Mm. on their own. It's a very complicated process. It's loaded with emotion and it's good to surround yourself with great advisors along the way. I love what you said about, it's not just about the quantitative, it's also about the qualitative perspective, particularly for family businesses where um, even if you're disposing of your business 100%, you still are vested in it, want to see that 
Um, its role in communities is still upheld, stakeholders will be managed. So aligning with the vision and the values of the proposed buyer is really important because I've we I've experienced this where um as a family we had an investment and we sold to the highest bidder and it was one of the biggest regrets we had because there was and we didn't sell out a hundred percent, we partially sold down. There was just misalignment of objectives and time horizons and values um whilst yeah we gained in terms of liquidity um we lost in terms of the future trajectory of the business as well because we couldn't align in terms of making joint decisions on the strategy of the business and and that's too bad but unfortunately it's it's more common than you think And one of the other things I wanted to mention is the integration side. So for owners that are maybe like you're explaining for your situation where it was a partial sale. And so there's some level of integration and management, the original management is going to stay involved. Um, Integration shouldn't wait till the end and you can't, and you shouldn't wait till to have those conversations after the close. It's too Mm. late. It really Mm. should start on the, on the acquiring side where they're setting their acquisition strategy. They should start thinking about integration really, really early on in the acquisition process. So for the seller in, in a seller situation with if they're out completely, okay. Or if they have an earn out or if they're involved in the organization directly for a number of years, that is another dimension, right? Of how will they be, if it's a competitor, you can imagine, right? If they're, they hate each other, <laughs> they've mm. hated each other for years. And now all of a sudden the owner is sitting in the, in sitting in the office building or even virtually there's going to be potential cultural problems. So all those aspects go into why uh, integration is so important and, 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 and the fit, you can ferret out some of these fit issues, I think in the, in the process of the buying and selling and all the conversations so that it doesn't get so far down the line and then you realize oh wow this was a bad this was a bad deal but that, I, it's easy to say that but I know it, in the heat of it, it it seems like you get on that we, you get on that treadmill and you got to keep going got to keep going mm. um, so it can be challenging to kind of say wait a minute is this really the right thing for us mm. wow this has been phenomenal Lori like particularly I love the piece on innovation um, what was the book you, you mentioned Disrupt by Luke Williams Williams buying that um and your insight on MA is like really really amazing if people would love to get hold of you how best can they reach you they can reach out to me on linkedin Lori barkman on linkedin and they can email me directly lbarkman at small and if they want to hit up my website it's the url small .com. They can schedule time with me there directly. I'd love to talk with them. And of course, if they want to listen to the show, it's called Succession Stories Podcast, and it's on all the platforms. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nikkei. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yes. I loved the whole conversation on entrepreneurship and the opportunities it provides for next gens to get involved in family enterprises, right? And I really believe that um, we're going to see less and less next gen stepping into CEO roles of their existing family enterprises. However, we will see more chief strategy officers, chief innovation officers, chief culture officers. And these folks might not lead in the business on the office, in the office. However, 
they may lead behind the scenes, right? And I loved what Laurie was saying about innovation and how innovation can be of the product or the service, or it also can be of the business model or of the process. And it can be quite intimidating (laughs) in this world we're in with how fast quickly our world is changing and thinking through things like blockchain, thinking through things like the metaverse, thinking through things like cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence. It can seem so far-fetched and the thought of embarking on innovation can be quite intimidating, let's be real. And I was reading a statistic by McKinsey recently um, released a report on the future of business and the outlook that business leaders have for our um, our landscape. And they predict that by 2026, that is in four years, guys, by 2026, half of the revenues will come from products, services, businesses that haven't yet been created. So our world is really changing at a very unprecedented rate. And if we fail to be future focused, we will literally be on the wrong side of disruption. And so we have to embrace this change, embrace this innovative mindset, but it can be incremental as opposed to radical transformation that we seek to embrace. Um, so I would encourage you just to learn, learn about the future of, you know, of work, learn about the future emerging technologies and start to think about how can this be applied to your business, your um, your business model, your process, your operations, as well as your wider industry, and start to seek how you can move the needle in bringing about positive change. Thank you so much. Take good care and God bless you.